Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. And welcome back. Today we are going to be talking about the image of God, or as they say in Latin, imago Dei. You may have heard that phrase before. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to briefly look at the various views, how people throughout history have interpreted the meaning of what it means to be made in the image of God. Then we're going to look through the biblical evidence, starting in Genesis, a very good place to start, and see if we can glean some insight into what being made in the image of God means, what the application of that is, and if we can't come away with something that will help us get to know our Bibles a little better. So, starting off, how have people historically interpreted the image of God? Obviously, if you crack open any systematic theology, if you look at anybody who's written on this subject, you're going to see a very thick section because a lot of people have talked about what it means to be made in the image of God. I've tried to distill it down. Now, obviously, if if you're talking about the upper levels of debate and all the different areas, people are going to try to categorize them differently. But I think you can basically boil it down to actually two different main views, and then you can subcategorize that even more. But for for our interests, I think it'd be helpful just to break it down into two categories. And those categories are what we would call the resemblance view, or you could call that the ontological view. Ontological has to do with with the state of being, studying what it means to be. Uh, and so this, this view has to do with uh, who man is and what, uh, what he inherently possesses. That would be the resemblance or ontological view. The second main view, which has a couple different subcategories, would be a functional view. So you have resemblance or ontological, we'll just call it resemblance for, for ease of argument, resemblance and function. Those are the two main ideas. So for resemblance, this has been popular ever since the Reformation. And even before that, people would argue, obviously, who are trying to hold that, because if you're saying that's what the Bible means, it obviously just didn't pop up in the 16th century. But it was very popular in Reformation. A lot of reformers uh, wrote about this. And what this view holds to is a belief that, not in its entirety, obviously, but some property of human nature is like God. That's essentially what it is. We resemble God in some way. In the broad sense, this is true. What we see is that God acts in certain ways, and as human beings, we also act in those ways. For example, we see God get angry in Scripture, and we as human beings get angry in Scripture. We see God love in Scripture, and we as human beings love. And so, in a certain degree, we do acknowledge that we do are, we are modeled after God in a certain way. Now, of course, people would say that this is... Some people would say that this is the extent to which the image of God refers is that we are modeled after God. And because of sin, because of Genesis 3, that image of God is tarnished 
in our capacity to reflect that. And so in, in the truest sense of this view, the image of God is tarnished, but it's still there. We still reflect God in who we are, and yet we do so in an imperfect way because of sin. And there's definitely something to be said about that. On the other end of the aisle, you have the functional view, which has been more popular since the 20th century. And you can break the functional view into two different subsections, which are necessary to understand. You have the first kind of functional view, which is a representative view, which emphasizes the role of human beings in representing God as his under ruler, or a lot of people will use the term vice regent. Vice regent is a term that means that we are, if God's the shepherd, we're the under shepherd, so to speak, or if God's the king, we're the under king, we're, we're the person tasked with, with ruling in his stead uh, for him on behalf of him. So there's a functional uh, viewpoint in representative rule this viewpoint takes. And we'll talk more about this in a second, um, talking about what Genesis 1 talks about and how Psalm 8 might work into that, of course. But the second main subsection of the functional view would be the relational view. And that's people who hold to that view say that man is fully man when in relationship with God and human community. So in other words, uh, in Genesis 1.27, Scripture says that God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. So there seems to be an aspect of the fact that we have male and female. They are together in community. And when man is in relationships, he is functioning in the image of God. So those historically have been the main views. Obviously, I'm not trying to be exhaustive, but I just think it's it's helpful to categorize those things into those main components, resemblance or functionality. Of course, the most important thing that we want to do, and this, uh, I, I almost don't like doing it this way, just giving what people have said up front, because I think it's far more helpful to just work through Scripture and see what we can come out there. But I think sometimes it is helpful, especially in a very heavily theologized, can I create a word, theologized uh, topic where people will talk about it from these categorical distinctions. It's helpful to know what they're talking about at times. But now let's move on to the evidence, the evidence to consider, because I think that this is where we can make a lot of progress. So there are six main passages that are brought up in the discussion of the image of God. You have Genesis 1, 26. Uh, you have 1, 27. You have Genesis 5, 1 through 3. You have Genesis 9, 6. You have 1 Corinthians eleven seven and James 3, 9. Now, I mentioned Psalm 8 before. I don't know how much we'll talk about that, but I'll try to fit that in uh, a little bit to when we talk about Genesis 1. A lot of people, or maybe I'll say not everybody includes Psalm 8, but I do think there's a case to be made where Psalm 8 does reflect what it looks like to be made in the image of God and what what is uh, part of that. Now, I think just method, methodologically, it makes sense that we would want to talk about Genesis first. That has the main occurrences, four of the six 
main verses come in the early part of Genesis. And just the function of Genesis in Scripture is to set the definitions. It's to give us insight into the beginning. That's an important aspect that we need to understand. So I think we're going to look at that first and talk about what the implications are as we move forward. So Genesis one twenty six says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, the first thing that we want to look at is the concepts of image and likeness. Notice we talk about the image of God, but in Genesis 1.26, it also talks about likeness. So is there any difference between the concept of image and likeness? The word for image is tselem in the Hebrew, and the word for likeness is demut. So do they communicate anything different? If we look at the evidence, and I won't go through all this with you, but in general, most people agree that tselem relates to a concrete depiction, something like an idol, where demut indicates an abstract likeness. Now, although that's normally the case, we want to compare how those words are used within Scripture and what we see when we look at the later part of Genesis, in Genesis 5, for instance, is that the words are actually used interchangeably. And also, the prepositions are used interchangeably. So, in Genesis 1.26, for example, it says, In our image, notice in is the preposition there, and that's the bait preposition in Hebrew. And according to our likeness, that's the cough preposition. According, according to is the preposition there. That's uh, the cough preposition. Now, when we read Genesis 5, 3, and we'll pick up with verse 1 because it all flows together, uh, we see a difference. Notice this. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's verse 1. Verse 2, he created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Now, here's the important part. Verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now, what a lot of commentators have pointed out is that it's important there that we see that the image of Adam is passed on to Seth. And part of that relates to the fact that we know that the image of God is I wanted to say heretical. That's not what I'm thinking. It's not heretical. It's It comes through genes or passes on through a lineage is what I'm trying to say. And so because Adam is made in the image of God, everybody who's descended from Adam is made in the image of God. And so you see that image passed down. But what you also see here is that the prepositions are switched as well as the terms. So what you see is instead of in our image, the first phrase there, in our image, is what it was in 126. Here in 5.3, it's in his own likeness. So it's likeness, uh, demut, being fixed with the bait preposition here. And in his image, or according to his image, uh, you have tselem there fixed with the cough preposition, reversing of what we saw in Genesis 126. Also, uh, what you see in in uh, Genesis 5, 1, 
I read over that earlier, uh, he made him in the likeness of God. There you have just demut made there. Uh, and in Genesis one twenty seven, you have selim used is the image of God. And so what that seems to be is that in Genesis 5.1, in Genesis one twenty seven, you have different terms. You have Selim in one twenty seven and Demut, likeness, in Genesis 5, both being used singularly as a metonym of the whole image of God concept. So instead of using both descriptions, it's they just use one as a reference to the whole concept. So if we put all that evidence together, what it seems to indicate is that you can't really draw a sharp distinction between the two terms. And they should be taken holistically instead. That's why I think it's rightly stated that we talk about being made in the image of God instead of saying image and likeness of God because it's not... The purpose isn't to to communicate two different aspects of our image and likeness. It's communicating one entire holistic aspect of being related to God in some way. So just to be clear on that, I think that we can't take image and likeness in two different ways. I think they communicate one holistic concept. Now, the second thing that we want to look at uh, evidentially is the fact that the ancient Near East gives us some conceptual parallels for what it be, what it means to be made in the image of God. For example, it was commonly believed in the ancient Near East that the king of a nation was a representative of the gods of that nation, ruling on their behalf. So whenever there was a king of Egypt or Mesopotamia or whatever, you have them being the representative of the god of that nation. And this is a quote, a good quote from Kenneth Matthews in his Genesis commentary, which uh, it's in the New American Commentary series. Highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite Genesis commentaries. Really well written. Has a lot of great stuff in it, and it's not hard to understand. Does a great job. He says this in uh, his section on Genesis 1. He says, Among the Mesopotamians and the Canaanites, royal figures were considered sons adopted by the gods to function as vice-regents and intermediaries between deity and society. Egyptian society recognized Pharaoh as divine, who was Horus in life and Osiris in death. Some royal stelae described the king as the, quote, image of God, unquote. So what Matthews is saying there, this is me speaking, what he's saying is that the kings were often or maybe not often, but at least occasionally in our records that we have referred to as the image of their God because they were representative rulers for that God. And there's an example that I actually pulled from uh, an old book uh, called Ancient Records of Egypt. And I'm going to quote this for you and listen. Um, this is a quote uh, from the Egyptian records translated into English. It says, the utterance of the divine king, lord of the two lands, lord of the form of Kepri, in whose limbs is Ra, who came forth from Ra, whom Ptah-Tetanen beget King Ramses II, given life to his father from whom he came forth, Tatanen, father of the gods. And this is the quote of what he says. I am thy son, whom thou hast placed upon thy throne. Thou hast assigned to me thy kingdom. Thou hast fashioned me in thy likeness and thy form, which thou hast assigned to me and thou hast created. 
All right, end quote. So what we see in that quote is that there you have the ruler, King Ramses, being related to the image, the likeness, the form of, uh, of the gods there in Egypt. And that's an important uh, parallel, I think, that we can draw upon to see what people would have thought of when they hear the concept of image or likeness being given to the people. So what this means then is that the ideas of image and likeness are commonly used in the ancient Near East to give representative ideas of vice regency on behalf of a god. And so what that would mean then, if we import that idea into Genesis 1, which I think there's there's reason to do, is that what the main emphasis there is that human beings are given the status as representatives of God to be his vice regent. Now, as we move on, there's another reason why not just the ancient Near Eastern parallels, I think, give strong support to that. But I think there's also some grammatical things going on in Genesis 1.26 from a Hebrew linguistic point of view that is really helpful and points that thing, points those things out to us. So for example, um, when we read Genesis 1.26, when we look at 1.26, we see, uh, a common, uh, translation would be, let's look at the Holman Christian Standard Bible, for example, here. The Holman Christian Standard said, let us make Man in our image according to our likeness, period. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, etc. We look at the ESV, for example. You see Genesis 1.26 is translated, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, period. And let them have dominion over the sea, over the fish of the sea, over the birds, etc. Uh, New American Standard, Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, semicolon, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the... Those are all similar translations, right? King James versions, very similar. Those are all kind of giving the same concept. There's there's kind of a break between the two ideas of making man in God's image and let him have dominion over these things. But if we look at the Hebrew itself, and if you, you don't know Hebrew, this I'll try to break it down really simply. There's a verb form in Hebrew known as a cohortative. That would be the let us make. So it's kind of a volitional sense. Let's do this. Let's make man in our image. So that's a cohortative. And in Hebrew grammar, when you have a cohortative followed by a verbal form known as a jussive, which is what we see in the next um, let him rule or let them let them rule, uh, that is a jussive in the Hebrew text. <clears throat> and what we see there is when you have a cohortative followed by a jussive with a vav conjunction there, you have a purpose clause. And that changes the meaning a little bit. Now, the net Bible translation, New English translation, translates it best, I think, and they translate it this way. Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. You could say so or so that they may rule. Usually it's kind of cumbersome to say so that, but that's that's the idea. Is there? It's not just a break and then a continue, continuation. There should be a, a link between the two where you have uh, a purpose clause or it could be a result in some 
some uh, instances, but I think purpose is the best way to understand it here is that God is saying, I'm going to make man in our image, in our likeness, so that the reason I'm doing that is so that they may rule. And so if that's the case, if it is a purpose clause here, which would make sense, then what you have is another strong indication that functionality is the main point here. And what that means then, putting that together with the ancient Near Eastern concept along with the Hebrew grammar here, is that when Scripture says that God makes man in his image, man has this prized role of functioning as a under-ruler for God. What a privilege that God, who is the creator of all things, gives man a opportunity, an ability to function as caretaker, as somebody who rules over what God ultimately rules over. I mean, that's that's a huge privilege. And I'm just going to flip over on my handy-dandy logos here to Psalm 8, because this is really why a lot of people bring in Psalm 8 during this uh, discussion, is because when you, I'm going to flip to the ESV here, and when we look at Psalm 8, don't want to be in Exodus 8, When we look at Psalm 8 then, uh, the first part of Psalm 8 talks about how great God's creation creation is. That makes sense. When I look at the heavens, the work, this is verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? In other words, what's the significance of man? Like I see everything that you're doing and it's great and it's awesome. Why is man so special? Yet, verse 5 and this is the ESV, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. In other words, all of creation you have given to man to rule. Man is the ruler over all these things. And just because of all the creation language there, which there's a lot, we could go through all that, all this creation language and this this emphasis on the function of man, a lot of people say, uh, and I agree, that this is almost an exposition, uh, or it is an exposition of what man's role is in creation, is he's he's the ruler, he's the, he's the under ruler, and that's just such a privilege for, for him. So if that makes sense, if that's our starting definition, and if that's what we ought, how we ought to be thinking about this, then how do we make sense with some of the other passages? For example, in Genesis 9, uh, 9, 6, it said, it says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. We're going to actually talk about that in just a second. So I'm going to skip over that for one more, but I think that makes sense in the paradigm. First Corinthians 11, 7 says, for man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. And there's an interesting passage, and we don't have time to go into everything there. Although one day I'm sure I would love to do a podcast on on that passage. But what you see here is that in a context where it's talking about the authority of man, um, how he's given he's given the uh, if he is given in Genesis one the authority to rule over God's creation as the leader of his home of the church, uh, he needs to represent that well. He need, because of who he is, 
that's how he needs to function in society. That would be a simple way of understanding that, and I think it would make a lot of sense. James 3, nine. Uh, on the other hand, also gives, uh, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, talking about the tongue there, with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. So there again, I think it makes perfect sense where if we understand man is made in the image of God, they have this special role, representative rule, you don't have the authority or the right to curse them. That that's a that's a huge insult against God. It'd be kind of similar to can you imagine if an ambassador of a nation came to came to your house or something? Let's just say it's you know a Ukrainian ambassador or something. I don't know, just throwing out a random country, and you just start giving him all sorts of insults and slap him in the face or whatever. What you're doing in effect is you are insulting that entire country. Because that's who he represents, especially if he's on uh, state business, if he's if he's functioning on behalf of the of the country, that is your insult goes higher than just that individual. And likewise, when we insult human beings, when we curse them, when we when we function harshly toward them, we're actually doing that toward God. So when we think about this. I think it's very clear from the ancient Near Eastern cultural context, as well as the grammar in Genesis 126, that functionality is the main emphasis of what it means to be made in the image of God. We are servants of God functioning as, as his vice regent. However, I will also say that I don't think we need to be uh, seeing the resemblance view and the functionality view as completely mutually exclusive. I do think that we actually do resemble God in many ways in just the fact that we have intelligence that far surpasses any other part of creation, that we do experience emotions, we have memory, all these things. I think that definitely has as a role to be played. However, scripturally speaking, I do think the emphasis is on our function as representatives of God. So I'm not saying they're exclusive. I'm just saying what's being emphasized is the fact that we have a have a role to play in God's creation and being made in the image of God is a high distinct honor that no other part of the creation here represents. And that's really important. Now, I want to give a specific application that maybe maybe you've heard before, maybe you haven't. I but I think it's it's unique. And when I first thought about this, it, it really kind of struck me. Remember what Jesus does in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22. He talks about the, the prohibition against murder. He says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So what's Jesus doing here? He's saying that if you think you're, if you think you're good just because you don't murder, you're wrong. Now, why, why is he saying that? Now, this is where we go to Genesis 9, 6 again, because we need to ask, okay, well, why is it wrong to murder? Well, Genesis 9, 6 gives us the answer. 
I, I showed you that earlier. Uh, it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now, someone has said that killing man is as close as you can get to killing God because it is the murder of his representative. And there's some truth to that. But what we also need to understand is that the fact that he's made an image of God prohibits murder, yes, but it also prohibits mistreatment, like we were talking about in James 3. So Jesus is really just going right along the application train, which makes complete sense when we understand the whole theological construct of what it means to be made in the image of God. See, it's wrong to murder someone because they are a representative of God, but it's also wrong to insult or mistreat them because they are made in the image of God. The application goes far deeper, and we see that throughout Scripture. You know, we we often apply the image of God concept to abortion, and I think we rightly should. Abortion is wrong because it's murder of somebody who has been created in God's image, although they are still in the very beginning stages of life. It's still wrong to take their life. We, we understand that because the image of God concept applies to all human beings. But that's the, that's the tricky thing. And that's what we need to remember is that it applies to all human beings, even though, even our enemies, even our enemies, it applies to them. We need to treat human beings with a special dignity. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, so-and-so doesn't deserve to be treated well, or they don't deserve to be treated however. But if they're made in the image of God, and every human being is, they must be treated well. They must be treated as God's representative, even if they are doing a horrible job of that. You know, it should also apply just to our treatment of orphans, widows, the oppressed, anybody. It's, it's really one of these foundational concepts which we have to grasp for understanding ethics. The image of God is so important. It's such a privilege. I mean, you and I, we have this the greatest privilege in the world, being an image bearer of God. What a unique privilege that, you know, your dog Fido doesn't have, your cat doesn't have, only human beings have. And so I just hope that this impacts you. Uh, the next time you have that crazy guy cut you off on the freeway or something, just remember, he's still an image bearer of God. And we need to understand what that means for us. Well, thank you for listening. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. As always, feel free to email me your comments or questions. You can email me at peter at petergaiman.com. For more information on the podcast or about me, visit petergaiman.com. For more information on Shepherd Seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, arrivederci.